Welcome to The Critic and Her Publix from the New York Review of Books and Lit Hub. I'm your host, Marva Emre. In this live interview series, I ask the best and most prominent critics working today to perform criticism on the spot, on an object they've never seen before. It's a glimpse into brilliant minds at work, performing their thinking, taking risks, and making spontaneous judgments, which are sometimes right and sometimes wrong. If you've been listening to The Critic and Her Publics, you'll have a good sense of the variety of objects we've encountered so far. In this episode, our object is something a little different. Food. And there's no one better positioned to illuminate it for us than Hannah Goldfield, a food critic at The New Yorker and the beloved former writer of the Tables for Two column. I'll confess that I'm someone with a frankly pragmatic approach to food. I know I need to eat it so I don't die. But reading Hannah's poetic, playful, and intensely sociable column week after week actually makes me want to eat. To commemorate her writing for Tables for Two, she created a listing of her 20 favorite restaurants that she reviewed in New York City. Here are a few of the descriptions that leapt out at me. A texturally thrilling stuffed cabbage filled with sticky rice and oyster and button mushrooms draped in a sweet and sour tomato sauce and finished with crunchy focaccia breadcrumbs. A bowl of clear, fragrant broth dense with wontons bobbing like jellyfish, their ruffled bellies stuffed tightly with shrimp, their slippery wrappers trailing like tentacles. The half-chicken is brined, cleverly. I preferred the testicle, meaty but mild, as supple as sweetbread, nearly spreadable. I could go on and on, but it'll only make me and you hungry. So I'm delighted to welcome Hannah Goldfield as my guest today. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. So, Hannah, I'll start with the question that I've asked all of our guests so far at the beginning, which is that many of the people in this room are 18, 19, 20-year-old students. Can you tell us the story of how you got from where they are to where you are? (laughs) I can. Um, Well, I... I decided I wanted to be a food critic as a child, which is sort of unusual, I think, although I don't know, now over the last, you know, 30 years, food has taken a more central place in the broader culture. So maybe many little kids are now saying that they want to be um, food writers when they grow up. But um, I've told this story so many times that I've now convinced myself it's, it's apocryphal. But as I recall, when I was 10, my mom, who's in the audience tonight, took me to see My Best Friend's Wedding, which is a romantic comedy starring Julia Roberts. And in the first five minutes of the movie, you learn, and then it's never mentioned again, that Julia Roberts is a restaurant critic. And there's this very dramatic scene of her eating at a fancy restaurant um, with white tablecloths, and she's eating with her editor. And everyone knows she's there, which I later learned is not really realistic. but the whole kitchen staff is standing at a little porthole window in the kitchen watching her take her first bite and then she pronounces what she thinks of it and she says something ridiculous like I'm calling it refined yet 
playful or something. Um, and for whatever reason, I was just completely captivated and felt like, oh, that's my calling. That's what I must do. I think I, I really liked food. I loved food. Um, I've always just been a really voracious eater. And I think I had decided that I was a writer because in third grade, I wrote a poem that all the adults in my life told me was <laughs> good, and I was like, oh, validation, this is, this is nice. So I think I just thought, okay, food and writing, I'll put those two things together, like Julia Roberts, and, and that's it. And, um, and then, <laughs> I mean, a lot of things happened uh, before I became a food writer, but um, when I was a teenager, I grew up in New Haven, I interned at uh, a now you know, defunct weekly alternative newspaper called the New Haven Advocate, and I wrote my first restaurant review of a kosher meat market <laughs> that sold prepared foods. And they published like a full page of my review of this restaurant. So I got really lucky, I guess, in that I got to try it. This you is know? when you were in high school. This is when, I, yeah, I was 15. So I had this idea of very young that I, that I could be a writer. Um, and then in college, uh, I went to Columbia, and I realized that I wasn't the only person who wanted to write about food. And so then I became very, I was like, oh, I don't want to, the scent of competition kind of threw me off. Mm. And I decided I have to focus on other things. And I ended up um, studying evolutionary biology. Uh, I kept writing, but I kind of thought food is not serious enough. And then I was an intern at The New Yorker, and then I became a fact checker at The New Yorker, which felt very serious. And Tables for Two, which was a column that was shared by a bunch of different staff, uh, staffers, assistants, editors, writers. And one of the people who held the slots, there were like seven slots left, and I guess I had made it known that I loved food, even though I had backed away from the idea of being a food writer. And so they, someone asked me if I wanted to kind of audition to fill one of those slots and I did of course and um Wait, talk to me about that audition yes. how do you audition well, to become a food they writer they said go write one you know pick a right. restaurant that you're interested in I picked a restaurant I wrote it it felt like the culmination of my life like I couldn't believe that this was happening it was like I remember crying when they told me I could I could write one and then they said oh yeah you did a good job you can keep writing them and it was like just, you know, ecstasy. Um, so I wrote one and then I was in the roster and so then I wrote one, you know, every couple months and then they ended up deciding just, that just three people should write them. So then we, three people shared the column. And then I left the magazine um, to work at the New York Times as an editor um, for the Style magazine there. And then the New Yorker decided that they wanted to hire uh, a couple writers to to really cover food, which they they've always had lots of food writing in the magazine, but there were not writers who were specifically kind of on the food beat. So I went back in 2018, and that was when I took over Tables for Two, and I became the designated restaurant critic, writing a column every single week. Um, so yeah, that's kind of <laughs> so how can I ended you up walk here. us can you walk us through what going to a restaurant with you is like <laughs> when you are on assignment? Yes. And the first thing I'll just point out is you said that 
the vision of Julia Roberts eating while the staff is peeking <laughs> out behind the window yes. is not realistic. And I assume Ratatouille, my other go-to right. movie for food criticism, <laughs> those are the two. Also yeah. not realistic, right? Well, so, that one's so probably more me. realistic because I think he's anonymous in that, right? That's the the anonymity is the thing that was missing from uh, my best friend's wedding. Um, I mean, it's for me. I was doing something that's a little different than I think traditional restaurant criticism in so much as that exists anymore because restaurant criticism is a sort of half alive art, I would say. Like it's one of the first jobs to go, I think, at newspapers, um, which is sad, but there are still, you know, most major cities still have at least one person doing it and New York has several. Um, but it, usually a critic is anonymous um, and I, maintained a certain level of anonymity. I did not wear disguises, as some previous critics have. Um, Ruth Rachel, who worked for The Times, and Mimi Sheridan, who was the first woman to be the restaurant critic at The Times, they both were known for wearing wigs and sometimes fake noses and elaborate <laughs> disguises. Um, so I didn't do that, but I never made reservations under my own name. I, what are some good pseudonyms that you've I used? used? I didn't have a particularly good pseudonym. I just used, I have two middle names and I use those. It's mm -hmm. Grace Bourne, which sounds very different than Hannah Goldfield. Um, uh, but, it, but it is my actual middle names. So yeah, I just tried, I just tried to make sure they didn't know I was coming mm -hmm. so that, you know, they couldn't prepare for me in some mm -hmm. way. And I've never really understood what that would mean. I, it's like the service is probably a lot better, but the idea that they're like saving some like special cut of meat or something, or like they're going to make, I mean, I guess they are maybe more careful with the food, but I tried to just at least let there be an element of surprise that I was mm -hmm. showing up. Um, but I also read about a lot of places where they weren't looking Right for critics. Right, so. but so you go and then yes. you sit down. Yes. no one knows who you are. A hopefully. waiter brings you. Hopefully, yes. a waiter brings you a menu. How do you look at the menu? How do you decide what to order? How do you well, make I, those first decisions? I look at the menu before I go, right? Um, just to kind of get a sense of of what's being offered, which is also how I decide if I want to write about something. Is it interesting? Does it seem like it's going to be an exciting place to cover? And then I, you know, I never went alone. I always brought at least one other person, and then tried to order as many things as I could, which was often sort of like an absurd scenario of a table covered with, <laughs> you know, just an ungodly amount of food. Um, so the more people I could, I could bring, the better, which made me a very popular friend for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing excites people more than being invited to eat out with a restaurant critic because um, mm -hmm. they don't you don't have to pay and I'm now that I'm not doing it I have to remember when I'm at a restaurant like oh no you don't I can't order like six entrees you know because <laughs> I am paying for it now because it, it, it but it's just very thrilling to just order with abandon so yeah so try trying to order as many things as possible always going to restaurants more than once so that you can try to cover the entire menu but also so that you can get a better sense of the room and the service because it's a you know a restaurant's not a fixed thing it's going to be different every night um, you might have a great experience one night and a horrible or funny experience the next night and then I'm also always I'm always trying to capture um, not just the food but also the scene um, and so I would say sometimes eating out with me would mean being ignored while I eavesdropped on the tables <laughs> around me my husband in particular I think bore the brunt of that because. 
uh, as he should. Uh, yeah, I would. I would just be like shh and like transcribing furiously the amazing things that someone was saying at the next table. Because you want to know. I think a reader wants to know everything about the restaurant. Who eats there? What does it feel like beyond? Mm-hmm eating. So do you take notes? Okay, let's say the appetizer has come. Yes. And do you take a bite of it and your friend also takes a bite of it? Do you have your notebook out and you're writing as you two are eating and talking and what are you how are you taking notes? I use my phone. Use your phone. Um and so I think I just look like I'm rudely texting, which you know <laughs> most people are doing anyway. Um you know Jonathan Gold who was the critic for the LA Times, the LA Weekly, and then I think he was also the critic for the LA Times, beloved restaurant critic, said that taking notes at a restaurant was like taking notes while having sex, which (laughs) I think he has a point, but I also think it's like, I don't have a good enough memory to, but I do, I do, like, I guess I would go back and forth, because sometimes you just want to relax and make sure you're actually experiencing the experience, um, and that you're not too in your head, but when I would have like a really specific observation, I would write it down. I would just jot it down in my phone. Or if someone that I was eating with said something that I thought was really, you know, profound or notable, I would write it down. Or um, if a server described a dish in great detail, I would write that down because it's hard to, I, I want to remember what goes into a dish so that I can write about it mm. later. How much do you trust the opinion of the people that you're eating with? I mean, I imagine, it, like, I, I think the question I'm trying to ask is, do you feel like you have a more refined palate? <laughs> is that a thing? Um, how much do you understand your own sense of taste and its development? Well, I think that more important than my, you know, it depends on how you define taste, I guess, but more important than whether I like something or don't like it or whether someone else like something or doesn't like it is is context. So I think if someone you know doesn't like something, I'm not I'm not, that's I'm not going to let that be the final word. And if I don't like something, I'm not going to let that be the determining factor. Um, I'll certainly take it into account. But the bigger question is, is this dish prepared in the way it's supposed to be? So do I not like it because I don't particularly like this flavor, or? is this supposed to taste one way and it clearly tastes another way. So there are things that I have eaten that I wouldn't particularly want to eat again, but if I've been able to determine that that the dish is prepared in the way that it's supposed to be and that other people like it and that it's that my distaste for it is is totally personal. So this is like this is the kind of calculation I'm always trying to make. Then I'll still say this dish is amazing. For example, do I want to eat goat testicle? <laughs> I don't know. Do, I don't know. Night? Do you? <laughs> no, not particularly. And I didn't. I wouldn't say I love that dish. It was at this really amazing restaurant called Damaka, but I respected it, and I could tell that there was a lot that I, I could tell that it had been expertly made. The chef is amazing. Everything else he made was amazing. I did. I enjoyed it. It's just not. It's not my. It's like it's not a thing I've grown up eating. It's something that I have a little bit of a psychological block about, and I feel that way. <laughs> and I think many people do, although there are many people who ate goat testicle as a baby and continue to find it to be their favorite food. So, so that's, that's sort of how I approach it. So in terms of what other people are saying, if someone has a really interesting observation about something that's not, again, necessarily qualitative, but just um, sort of an observation, then I might use that. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes someone else will pick out a flavor that I 
you know, noticed but didn't identify immediately. So they'll mm. be like, oh, this has cardamom in it. And I'm like, oh, yes, thank God. You, you, you're here. You, you're yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so what I hear you saying, and this is very interesting, is that, because I actually think this, I think this way about judging novels yes. as well, too, which is that there's some combination or some mingling of intention. Yes. Of pleasure and an appreciation for expertise or for yes. technique. Yes. And I'm wondering then how you match a sensation to a vocabulary mm. for describing it. Because as I was reading through your 20 favorite restaurants, I kept admiring all of these different strategies that you had for giving people who aren't actually able to eat the food yeah. a sense for what the food is like. And this is a particular difficulty, I think, that people face because criticism is in writing, and those of us who write about books actually kind of have it easy. We're working with something that's in the same medium as criticism, but of course you can't prepare food as an act of criticism, right? Right, right. right. So how have you developed that, that vocabulary or that lexicon? How do you find the right words, the right similes or analogies how do you write? That's a great question, and, I, and one I don't know that I can answer because it feels very instinctual for me. I don't know. I, I studied poetry, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I feel like that. It definitely, I, I think I somehow, you know, honed the ability to describe things and in that way, but, I, but it's not something that I'm, I think I'm trying to make it tangible and colorful and beautiful, but I don't know that I know exactly how I do that. Mm. It's, a, it's a good question. So when you say something is brined cleverly, yes, right. That really, that that was really interesting to me because I was like, what does it mean to brine something <laughs> cleverly? And it gives me a kind of feeling for taste mm. without telling me exactly what mm -hmm. it is. How did you pick that? Well, that I think I think I said I, it was brined in pickle juice. Yes, right? yes. cleverly, was, comma well, in pickle yes. juice. Yeah, so yeah, I thought yeah. that I thought it was clever to to brine because okay, so that restaurant is called Gertrude's and it's kind of like a neighborhood bistro there are lots of things that anybody would recognize like roast chicken on the menu um, but the chef is Jewish and he put all these sort of like old world's little Jewish twists into the food and so I loved that because you can brine chicken in many ways it's it's really just salt mm -hmm. and you can dry brine it with salt or you can brine it in salt water and you know, pickles have a real uh, place of pride in Ashkenazi and all Jewish cuisine and, and many other cultures too, of course. But I thought it was this amazing little twist mm. um, to brine the chicken and pickle juice and give it some distinction beyond other roast chickens. So, so the that's clever, what I thought was clever. Yeah, yeah. so the <laughs> cleverness is a judgment of the way history yes. or culture is being brought to bear on the preparation exactly. of the of yes. the food. Exactly. That's so interesting. Are there other descriptions, like memorable descriptions or ones you really worked on or struggled over that are coming to your mind right now? Oh God, it's so hard because I did this every week for five years, so it's hard. But but I I mean, the the uh, wontons like jellyfish. Yeah, it's funny. I don't remember writing that, <laughs> but as you said it, I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty funny. I like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I guess that's not one that I that I struggled over. Uh, I feel like that's like kind of the easy part is when something emerges like that. Like I don't think that I struggle over. I think I sometimes struggle to find those descriptions and when and when they don't come to me I probably just figure out some other way to write mm -hmm. about things because I things like that like I, I remember um, 
eating this lasagna that was, I think it was an artichoke lasagna, and uh, it looked like like petticoats to me, like a like, and and I remember in the restaurant. This is when I take notes. I remember thinking while I was eating it, that's what this looks like, and I wrote that down. So I feel like whenever I have a really vivid sort of metaphorical or, or a simile, uh, it's usually it just comes to me. And mm. I just it just appears in my mind. You just mentioned earlier about how studying poetry and reading poetry was the way that you honed this metaphorical imagination <laughs> of yours. Yeah. But it also occurs to me that one way to hone a technical appreciation for anything is by doing it. Do you bake? Do you cook? I do. Yeah. 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 I cook. I cook quite a bit. Um, I love to cook and I love to bake. Um, I guess I kind of hold those two things, like writing about food and cooking separately. Hmm. I think I'm an eater first and a cook second. I mean, they're definitely, I, I love to be around food. I, I love to eat it and touch it and <laughs> I, sound, I sound insane. I love to touch food, but I do. I, I, I love everything about food. So I, I'm sure Do you that touch it? So when something comes out, do you? No, not no. A, no okay, I just okay, mean okay, like, all right. <laughs> okay, 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 sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm no, just imagining I mean, you slapping the I lasagna, mean, I'm, trying to get a feel for it. No, yeah. but at the farmer's market, I, right, I have right. to touch, you know, every apple before I decide that I've oh, landed on the right You're a super spreader. You're a super spreader. Okay, that's yeah. me. Um, and, and then just cooking in such a tactile uh, experience. Um, I mean, yeah, I think, I think you learn, yes, cooking certainly teaches you a lot about food, but I've been writing about food longer than I've mm. been cooking, so I, somehow they hold separate spaces. You know, I have, a, I have a student who I think I told you earlier is writing about cabbage, yes. has written these sort of brilliant pieces about cabbage, and one direction that the piece is taking is thinking about how cabbage is sourced, where mm -hmm. it comes from, who works to produce it. Mm. How much do these larger political questions about where food comes from, who harvests it, who prepares it, the whole labor of food preparation, how much does that play into what you do? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. I think traditionally it has not played into food criticism and restaurant criticism in particular, and I think that as the world has changed even in the last like five years that's been a question i've heard more and more it hasn't played a huge part in what in, in the restaurant criticism that i've done you know i've been writing these sort of capsule reviews that are really about the experience of being in the restaurant but i think you know i i do i fully believe that food is politics which is a thing that people say a lot, especially right now, um, and I think that there are other writers who are who have certainly done that, and that there's a lot to be done. And I, I'm I'm interested in the idea of trying to meld those two things together. It seems difficult because those things are often painful, <laughs> and and then and then you have this writing that's the the main purpose is sort of pleasure, but of course that's the problem is that you can't mm. have one without the other. I don't know. Mm. That's, it's not a great mm. answer, but I think it's a really tangled it's a really tangled thing. Well, before I have our bakers come up and present their wares, I feel like I have to ask you what the best thing is you've ever eaten and what the ever most disgusting eaten. and what the most disgusting <laughs> thing is that you've ever eaten. Um, oh god, best is so hard. I've eaten so many amazing things. I I'll start with the most disgusting. The thing that I can think of at least like recently that really 
repulsed me was um, calves liver. There's this restaurant, and this is nothing against the restaurant. I think they actually prepared it as it's meant to be prepared. Um, but there's a restaurant in the theater district called Joe Allen, which is like a really old school pre and post theater restaurant and it's kind of like very mid-century and so I ordered it because it seemed like the thing to get there because it seems like such a 1950s dish it was like liver and onions and I just hated it and I like hated it so much it like it made me angry I was like not not at the restaurant but I just was like I love eating so much and so to eat something that mm. is not pleasurable is bad. I, I ordered <laughs> uh, two years ago on Bloomsday I was in Dublin and I ordered kidney oh, and liver no no yeah. no no I ordered kidney <laughs> and liver Scottish. and it was absolutely disgusting yeah. and I walked away and went to the bathroom and then came back and a critic who shall not be named had eaten all of it off of my plate and I thought well okay it's for some people and not yes. and not for, yes. not I for think others I really so, like yeah. chicken liver so I think yeah. I thought maybe I would like calf's liver but for some reason it just really did not do it for me and then god the most delicious thing or the most memorable meal. The most memorable meal, most that, I've memorable meal that you've ever had. Um, for a long, I think this is, it's just sort of taken this position in my mind, but the, I've only been to Paris once and it, I was, I think, 18. And I had a really memorable meal at this tiny restaurant, which is, it's become like this mythical thing. I, and now I can't remember what it's called, of course, but it was run by, a mouse. <laughs> by a mouse. Yeah, by a mouse. A rat. <laughs> um, no, it was run by a couple, and it was like this very glamorous woman, and she was the front of house, and and her husband was the chef, and they were like, I think they were in their sixties or seventies. It was called La La Table du Michel. It does not exist anymore, but I still have a matchbook from it. And I think, I mean, the food was definitely exceptional, but I think I also felt like very adult for the mm. first time in my life. And I was in Paris and, you know, mm. and just, I remember, but I remember having asobuco for the first time and mm -hmm. escargot. And so that's always held yeah. a special place. I mean, I've eaten so much good food since then, but it's, it's, always, it's always held a place in my heart. In your heart. <laughs> Can I have our bakers come up to the audience microphone? to introduce their wares. I think I will start, if that's okay, and say that last night, and just you can say a little bit about how you made it if you want. Last night, my children and I made potato chip chocolate chip mm. cookies. Mm -hmm. And the best part of it was watching my kids crush <laughs> the potato chips. Thank we you. also realized that we did not oh have yeah, we also realized we did not have a mixer, and so my husband had to do the whisking <laughs> by hand. And then he came in here and wanted a cookie and tried to explain that he had done the whisking, and everyone was like, no, get out. So maybe if you guys could save a cookie for him, he'd be, him you could save him a little, yeah. a little piece of yeah. yours. So that's, that's mine. Maya? Maya's my, my cabbage writer. I am the cabbage Hi. writer. Yeah. Um, my name is Maya, and I have celiac, so I've baked you... Um, our family chocolate chip cookie recipe. They're called big, fat, chewy chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> but I have downsized them for the purposes of this event. When we make them at home, we make them literally the size of our heads. It's very fun. Um, and the recipe exists on half a sheet of paper. Uh, the instructions are like whisk and then it just lists the ingredients, so I'm excited for you to try it. <laughs> Thank you, Maya. Hi, I'm Myra. Um, I made ginger molasses cookies today. Mm. 
They're from Sola El Whaley's um, recipe in the New York Times. They use fresh ginger and ground ginger, and they take a bit of time to make, but they're really worth it in my opinion. Hello, I'm Sabrina. Um, I made two cookies because I couldn't decide which to make. <laughs> um, the first one is, I don't know if you know City Bakery before it mm-hmm. closed down. I um, it is my attempt at recreating them. It's a brown butter coconut cookie with a mix of red fife, spelt, and all-purpose flour. Wow. Um, the red fife <laughs> I recently got and was very excited about, and it just helps add like a nuttiness to it. Yeah. Um, and then I made a olive oil, rosemary, chocolate chunk shortbread, um, and that is vegan and very good. And it has salt and coconut sugar on top. Hi, I'm Arla. I'm here uh, in place of my housemate, Kyla, who is the actual baker Mm. of the uh, snickerdoodle cookies that I have brought here today. Um, The recipe shall remain a mystery because it is only in Kyla's mind. Um, And I am not Kyla, so I do not have the recipe for you. I will say that I heard that the melting of the butter was a very laborious process. (laughs) Um, And I can also tell that a lot of bowls were used because I was there to do the cleaning (laughs) up. That was my contribution. Um, Again, I have no stakes in this. Uh, So you can be as critical as you like. Yes. Okay, can we just get a round of applause for all of them? We will take a short break now and be back with the second half of The Critic and Her Publix. The Critic and Her Publix is sponsored by Vintage, publisher of Crying in H Mart, the number one New York Times bestselling memoir by indie rock star Michelle Zahner of Japanese breakfast fame. In poignant memories and lyrical prose, Zahner reflects on her experience growing up Korean-American, losing her mother, and forging her own identity. New Yorker writer Rachel Syme says, Michelle Zahner has written a book you experience with all of your senses. Sentences you can taste, paragraphs that sound like music. Full of hope, humor, and honest emotion, Crying in H Mart is a book to cherish, share, and reread. Over one million readers have fallen in love. Now, it's your turn. Available now wherever books are sold. Hannah, I will share. <laughs> yes. I will share your okay. platter with you. Where do we begin? Well, I've never done this before. I've never reviewed cookies in front of a crowd. Um, I guess I'll pretend like this is a, a cookie platter at a restaurant. Yes, the dessert platter. The dessert yes. platter. Yeah, okay. cookies. Um, I'm just gonna dive in. Okay. You I can't remember. This is me? this is yes, of course. Mm. Ginger molasses. Ginger okay. molasses. Okay. Okay. Mmm. It's great. <laughs> Um, it's. <laughs> Are you about to say moist? <laughs> it is a little moist. Mm-hmm, I was. I was. Mm-hmm. Fo- the first mm-hmm. thing that I noticed was um, was the flavor of butter, which is mm-hmm. a very prominent in a nice way. There's like a, a bit of a nuttiness to it, mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to say that it, it tastes creamy because creamy is sort of like a, a mouthfeel texture. But I did. I don't know that I just I got a flavor that I associate with creaminess. Mm-hmm. And then the ginger actually is really strong, but it comes later, which is something I think about a lot um, when I'm writing, too, because I think that's a, a sort of a fun way to describe food is, like, what flavor do you get first and what mm-hmm. comes 
after. So this is like, I think this is the great example of, you know, what you would call a kick because it, it's really like, it's like a kick at the end. You get the kick of spice and it's quite spicy. It's quite gingery, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I really didn't taste that until the butter flavor had kind of faded away and the sweetness mm -hmm. had kind of faded away. So it's like this little journey. Really, oh my well God. done. <laughs> well done, chef. Okay, okay. I have to okay. Say, this is the cookie that is most visually appealing to me, which Can is you important describe, too. Describe which one this is. This is the coconut brown butter. So what I like about this visually is that it looks, I keep breaking them not evenly and That's giving okay. you a smaller piece. That's okay, piece. that's okay. Um, You're like my children. <laughs> <laughs> um, it looks really, I like how, that it's craggy, and maybe I like it because it, I could write about it more easily, um, but it mm. has real texture. It looks like it's crunchy and craggy. It's really nicely browned on top, um, which is just an appealing thing. And then I, I also love coconut, so. Um. Okay. <laughs> mm, it's oh really good. This is a cookie that tastes as good as it looks, which is like not, you know, always true, um, but mm. this is really nice. I like, I really like the, the textural diversity. It's soft, it's crunchy, it's chewy, it's it's kind a of little got salty. Like, There's a little, little saltiness, salty. yeah. Um, <laughs> the coconut. <laughs> I was like, what is there left? What is there left? There's you salt. Got I got one, yeah. <laughs> mm, mm. Mm, it's really good. But there's something else other than coconut. What you're, am I getting? You're probably getting the brown butter. Mm -hmm. and, and, you, and you can mm -hmm. feel the butter. How can you how can you feel the butter? <laughs> well, I don't want to use the word greasy because that sounds mm -hmm. like I would never use the word greasy when writing. I would I would think for a while about how to say that in a nicer way because it's not it's it's nice. Um, but you know there's there's a sheen on the bottom especially mm -hmm. and you don't feel it on your fingers. It's no, a I little, feel it. Yeah. I feel it on my fingers. I really like chewing this cookie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something very satisfying about chewing this cookie. Yeah, I like. I can't stop eating it. That's a good. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What I like is watching you like look at it, <laughs> taste it, hear it, feel it. Mm. I, I really like. Yeah. I really appreciate watching all of the senses take hold. There's Thank something you. really nice about that. Thank you. My husband always makes fun of me because when I really like something, I do like a little shimmy, and I just can't. <laughs> I can't help it. I just yeah. I get like really into eating. I don't know. It just it's like. It just makes me come alive. Okay, so um, what do we have? Okay. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you. <laughs> All right, should okay, we yes, finish off this do, one? Yes, Which this one is this? Is this the gluten-free? I think this might be the, is this the gluten-free? Mm. I can't tell that there's no, that there's no. no gluten in it. <laughs> I would never know. <laughs> what did, what mm. did you use instead of um, wheat flour? Um, mm. It's mm. just like, these days, you can find all-purpose one-to-one yes. flour, right. and so like Bob's Red Mill or yeah, I'm a big fan of cup for cup. Yeah, personally, mm -hmm. so that's what we that's what we typically it's great. use. Great, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say this is a very straightforward chocolate chip cookie. But mm -hmm. I also am continuing to. And there's a little bit of um. I wonder what they use because I now I just got a little bit of nuttiness, which is I'm guessing from the flour. I'm sort of amazed how you can reverse engineer how it was made from what it tastes <laughs> like, which is maybe a totally obvious thing for you to do, but for me it's not intuitive at yeah. all, so I'm really admire, yeah. admiring the way that you're doing Thank it. You. Yeah, You're welcome. <laughs> all right, what, should we do the snickerdoodle? Yeah. Have something a little bit different? Yeah. 
the the truth is, I'm just trying to get us to the point where nobody eats my terrible cookie, which is way less <laughs> thought already, out than. Do and we have one here? So this is yours. This is mine, yeah. but it it's like it's really good. It, it looks good, but it's terrible. So all right, the Snickerdoodle. Who made the Snickerdoodle? Come on up, Snickerdoodle, Snickerdoodle maker. Oh, Arla. Right, but oh, it's her. It's her your housemate. roommate. Okay, we will just talk about it. Well. This one I noticed, and now I've mm. broken it up. But I like that it has these striations, striations yeah. yes, mm -hmm. which I think mm -hmm. were probably made with a fork, like mm -hmm. a wooden fork, maybe. Did you Ooh. see that happen? A spatula, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's mm. a nice, that's a nice uh, visual mm. touch. Mm. You know, sometimes snickerdoodles are a bit much, mm -hmm. and I'm kind of this happy that this is a slightly subtler mm -hmm. snickerdoodle. Yeah. Oh. I think I'm learning something about myself mm -hmm. doing this eating. What are you learning? Um, <laughs> that I think I have a preference for very mild desserts. Mm. Mm. No, no offense to anybody. I'm, I'm very grateful well, for everyone who did this, but I'm just realizing yeah. this about, about myself. Yeah. I, think, I think that makes it more comforting mm. in some ways where it's like it's easy to eat. You know, mm -hmm. It doesn't sort of shock your mm -hmm. palate. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get this terrible thing over with. I hope. I'm I mean, this looks really good to me, and it's not burnt on the bottom. It's a little burnt on the bottom. I'm trying to give you one with, with a. Let's see. It's crunchy. Mmm. Mmm. Great. Please. <laughs> I mean, the the um mm. potato chips go a long way. Like mm -hmm. I like. I feel like putting potato chips in a cookie is just like mm. catnip for me mm -hmm. because it provides that textural mm -hmm. element and the saltiness. Mm. I would say it's a little dry. It's a little dry. It's a lot dry. <laughs> yeah. <It's a> lot. <laughs> so I was trying to figure this out yesterday because I followed the recipe, put it at the, set the oven for 350, rotated the pans, and then half of them were burned and half of them are dry. So. <laughs> Could be your but oven. it's my kid's fault. Yeah, it's, your it's kid's my fault. kid's fault. Yeah, it's my kid's fault. Throw bakers. them under the bus. Yeah, it's my kid's fault. But I, you know, I love all cookies. I really do. That's a really <laughs> nice way to end. I love all <laughs> cookies, even the terrible one. <laughs>